Hello, Malcolm here. Thanks for joining me for the first of two classes on the topic, or a question really, as to what is God's vision for this world? What is his vision for this world? Not just the next. So we're talking here about creation care, we're talking about environmentalism, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about the theology of ecology, we're talking about the kingdom, we're talking about heaven, we're talking about the new heaven and new earth, we're talking about Eden and its restoration, we're talking about salvation in the broadest sense. I think these are very important and exciting topics and a topic that we don't always approach with a good biblical perspective and understanding. So that's what I'm hoping to provide and to stimulate discussion amongst ourselves as to how then should we live. If we understand God's vision for this world, how then should we live and how should we respond to, in particular, the issues surrounding the problems with our environment, uh, the, the way that nature is being damaged by human activity and what's your responsibility in mind in regarding that. I will all be familiar, I expect, with the famous Sir David Attenborough. If you've watched his recent series called Perfect Planet, you'll have been astonished by the photography and by the beauty in the oceans and on the land and just in our world. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's clear that Sir David Attenborough, who's not a believer as far as I'm aware, has a vision for this planet. Do we? I believe God does. And if God has a vision for this planet, then I think so should we. What should that be? You see, what we have here started out good, didn't it? Genesis 1 verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Not just good, very good. And things will end good. Good is coming too. Revelation 22 verses 2 and 3, on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And goodness, the nations could use some healing, couldn't they? There no longer will be any curse. That sounds good. Started good, everything will end good. So if the start is good and the end is good, how should we treat what we have here in the meantime? That's the question. Now, the traditional Christian interpretation of all this is to avoid the question, really, by firstly focusing on where we're going. In other words, it doesn't really matter what happens to this earth. I'm going to heaven. We're going somewhere else. It doesn't really matter. Secondly, by dismissing what's going on down here, if you like, down here, uh, because it'll, it'll all burn anyway. So if it's all going to burn, what does it really matter? Is, are these pictures of what's happening true? Are they biblically accurate? And what's the impact on our world of such thinking historically and even today. So I'm going to argue in these uh, a couple of these two classes and more particularly in detail next week, uh, three things. Firstly, that you and I are responsible. God will hold us accountable for our choices regarding how we use this creation he has blessed us with. James chapter 1 verse 27 Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. You may say, what's that got to do with the environment? The way we treat environment, the, the, our environment, is creating orphans and widows. We're going to be held accountable for that. Secondly, we're going to talk about how you and I have a, an opportunity to partner with God 
in his desire to draw people to himself through his creation, through what he has made. The world around us is one of God's tools for evangelism. For example, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim, proclaim, declare the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge, knowledge of God. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. If we understand how this world is meant to be treated, then we can partner with God in using it to help people come to know him. And thirdly, we're going to be talking about how we have an opportunity to honour God by sharing in his, in his joy at his creation, what he has made. God is a God of joy. We can share in that joy if we rejoice over and treat well what he's given us. Again, as we mentioned earlier, Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. We can rejoice. So we're going to talk about some of these issues more specifically next time. Uh, today's class, I'm going to start by helping us, I hope, to gain a, uh, what shall I say, a better theological perspective on this topic as to how we should treat God's creation. In other words, what God's vision is. Now, a passage often cited about the destruction of the world, and therefore it doesn't really matter what happens here, a passage often cited, and indeed I have done this myself in the past, is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. So let me read that for us. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord, a day of God, and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So the big question for us today to think about is, are, are our assumptions about what this means correct? When it talks about destruction, what does that actually mean? How do we interpret this passage? Well, I'm going to offer some thoughts and then we can have some discussion in our family groups or however we want to, uh, to proceed with that. But firstly, let's talk about language. Let's talk about the genre. Let's talk about apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is language often associated with God intervening in Scripture. God does things. God says things. God comes to do something on this earth. Usually it has to do with judgment and bringing justice, bringing justice to the oppressed, to the vulnerable, and such like. The day of the Lord. That's mentioned here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Uh, looking forward to the day of God speeding is coming. So this is the kind of uh, territory, territory we're in. We're in apocalyptic language territory. Um, this kind of language is highly dramatic. It's very imagery rich. Lots of uh, metaphors and similes. A lot of poetic language. And that's important to bear in mind, because as we try and interpret this kind of language, which we see here and in the prophets, in Daniel and lots of Revelation, 
uh, as we look at that language, we need to understand that we're not to uh, approach it from a literal interpretation perspective. This is not like the teachings of Jesus when he says you should do this or don't do that. This is trying to describe something which is frankly indescribable. How on earth can God describe to you and I what it will be like at the when at the day of judgment and when God brings justice finally fully to the to humankind and to the earth? Very very difficult for God to do that. So he uses picture language, and so that's I think what we're seeing here in this passage, and it's appropriate to the subject matter. Uh, the right language has to be used for the right subject matter. Most of you know my mother died recently. And one of the things we've been talking about is probate and the will. And we have to talk to lawyers about that. And uh, legal documents regarding my mother's will and such like, they are written in a certain kind of legal language that would be appropriate for that, but would not be appropriate uh, for the latest uh, pop song or rap song or something like that, one would imagine. So you've got to think about the genre here. And we're talking apocalyptic language, language which is very pictorial in its sense. It's a bit like Psalm 114, for example, where, I'll just paraphrase, uh, we're told the sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains leapt like rams, the hills leapt like lambs. I mean, did they really? Did the sea really look? Did it really run away? Did the Jordan River really turn around? Did the mountains really jump up and down like lambs? I, I don't think so. Is trying to describe something awesome and amazing in a way that we'll get the picture. And that's what's going on here. So let's be careful as we look at passages which are dealing with these kind of dramatic issues that we don't look for too literal an interpretation. So that's the first thing, language, apocalyptic. Second, the day of the Lord. This phrase, the day of the Lord, is a very important phrase and it's kind of a trigger phrase or a, uh, it's a phrase that helps the reader to understand something significant is going on. You see it all through scripture. It usually denotes that God is taking decisive action or is about to. The prophet will say, if you don't repent, then God is going to take decisive action. It's going to be a day of the Lord. It doesn't necessarily each time refer to one particular day, like the end of time, but more that God is going to do something. So prepare. Uh, usually it means God ending some things and beginning others. Although the phrase isn't used in Genesis 3, that's what we see there. God brings judgment on Adam and Eve, but he also uh, gives them something new to do, some new work, and he offers them grace. With Noah and the flood, we see God's judgment, and then we see, well, we see the rainbow. We see God's mercy. We see God ending something, starting something. Those are examples, in a sense, of the days of the Lord. Many other times in Scripture, um, that, that phrase is used. And the days of judgment and of mercy are usually attended by terrifying signs in uh, on earth and in the sky. Not, again, necessarily literally. If you want to read a good passage about that, have a look at Isaiah 13, verses 2 to 13, which talks about the day of the Lord is near. Isaiah is telling God's people the day of the Lord is near. It's time to pay attention to God. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. All hands will go limp. Every heart melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish writhe like women in labor. Um, look aghast. Faces of flame. Faces of flame, not literally a flame, but just that image. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day. Wrath, fierce anger, making the land desolate, destroying the sinners. Stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Literally, I don't think that's the point. 
It's God coming to do something significant. End something, begin something new. Judgment, justice, and mercy are what happened on the day of the Lord, and they bring liberation, peace, and prosperity. I'll put some other references in the show notes to those kinds of ideas. And then God's creating something new. So Isaiah 65 might be one of the most wonderful passages describing this. And uh, it's referenced in the New Testament. And when we look at Revelation, we can see that there's a connection here with Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. I won't read the whole passage here, but just a, a couple of snippets. I will create new heavens and a new earth. That's like Revelation, isn't it? The former things will not be remembered. They will not come to mind. That, all that bad stuff's been dealt with. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem. Take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Uh, there won't be an infant that lives a few days or an old man does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They'll build houses, dwell in them, plant vineyards, eat their fruit. No longer build houses for others to live in or plants for others to eat. As for the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. They will be a people blessed by the Lord, them and their descendants. Before, I, before they call... I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. Wolf and the lamb feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Have a look at that passage if you want. Also Isaiah 11 and Hosea chapter 2. So we're looking at here a vision of a future era of blessing for God's people in a new harmonious creation. Lots of picture language there indicating that where there's been strife, where there's been fighting, where there's been war, where there's been uh, stress and all that, that now there's going to be peace and harmony. What do we see here? We see an end to sorrow, pain and premature death, verses 19 and 20. We see self-sufficiency, prosperity and fulfillment in verses 21 to 23. We see intimacy with God in verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. And we see ecological balance and harmony in verse 25. So again, this is not literal, but it's a radical remaking of the natural order, returning to the vision of Eden. What we're looking at here is what Genesis 2 and 3 was meant to be and stay as it, as it was. We're looking back to Eden. So what's the substance of this vision? You've got a physical vision. There is some physicality here, even though it's not literal. The houses seem to be real. They're real and material in this passage. There are no disembodied spirits strumming hearts on ethereal clouds here, as Sandra Richter says in her book, commenting on this. We're not going to be jumping on a cloud, strumming a harp in the next life. We're going to be in a, in a real physical environment of some kind with a, with a changed body, certainly, but still a body. And we're going to be enjoying something like this vision of Isaiah. It's a physical vision and it's an earthly vision. It's not about going to heaven. I, I don't know. This idea and the phrase of, you know, where are we going? We're going to heaven. There's some truth in that if we use it poetically. But in practical terms, 
we're not going to some other place. But it's about, to quote, quote Richter again, it's about the earthing of heaven into creation. Creation is healed of human suffering and of conflict between animals as God's kingly rule is re-established. Once God's kingly rule is fully established, it's begun to be established now because the kingdom is here, but once it's fully established, then there'll be no conflict in, uh, in the creation, either between people or between animals, it appears. So the day of the Lord is looking forward to a, a newness, which is a renewal and a return. Now, talking about return, let's talk about a third thing here. In terms of returning, we know that Jesus is going to return, prophesied by himself and talked about a fair bit in the New Testament. The coming of the Christ, he's going to come back, the parousia, is coming back. Now, many different ideas about when and what this will look like. When I was growing up in the 70s, the book The Late Great Planet Earth was talking about the, the, uh, a particular interpretation of that. The Left Behind film series and books, some of you might have watched or heard about and give us some idea of that interpretation. That's created quite a bit of confusion as much as anything else, but nonetheless, that's a particular vision. We've got premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, not quite sure how many millennialisms there are, trying to describe what will happen when Jesus comes back. And this isn't a class about that, but whatever the details, something climactic is coming when all things will change, will be renewed, will be refreshed, will be repaired. Something significant is going to happen when Jesus comes back. And it seems to be that's what's in the mind of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. This day of the Lord coming like a thief, heavens disappearing with a roar, elements destroyed by fire, the earth laid bare, everything destroyed. What should we behave like? We should behave in a godly way. Understanding that there's a new heaven and a new earth coming, coming. So what's the context here? The context is about a, a decisive cleansing judgment. Evil is fully and finally destroyed. God's creation is purified. Judgment is brought so that the creation will be refined, it will be purified, and it will be renewed. Earlier in the passage, if you look at verses 5 to 7, he talks about Noah's flood. And it's clear from connecting these ideas that uh, the writer, that Peter, is connecting the, the, what happened with, in the flood with what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. In other words, with the flood, evil was wiped away, but the earth was not fully destroyed. It was purified. And in a similar way, that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. The picture is of selective judgment, not complete destruction. Just as the water of the flood cleansed the earth, so the refiner's fire in Second Peter 3 will purify the world from evil, not annihilate it. It talks about the elements being destroyed. That's not the periodic table. That's the elemental forces of the universe. In other words, the distorted powers, which so far have thwarted God's rule on earth to some degree. They are going to be dealt with fully and finally. No more evil uh, getting in the way of God's purposes. The earth is not going to be burned up. 
it's going to be laid bare or disclosed, ready for uh, its renewal. So Jesus, in his life and in his teaching, shows us how to live in harmony with creation as it was meant to be, not how to escape it. Fourthly and finally, let's talk about what it means when the Bible says that something will be new, made new. There's new heaven and new earth. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 talk about this new heaven and new earth. For example, chapter 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember, that's from Isaiah. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. A loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order, in other words, the world in which we live, the era in which we live. So is this an annihilation of the present uh, situation we have in this world and the earth is that division i wouldn't say it is it's not a replacement with something brand new let's talk about reasons why i think that firstly we've got the issue of poetic language and again we talked about this earlier but the rest of revelation is so much poetic language the emphasis of the symbolic language is not on destroying the old but on making everything new as it says in chapter 21 verse 5 as God comes down from heaven, removing sin and chaos, the sea being a common Old Testament metaphor for the forces of chaos, and he's making his home with humanity. So it's not us going to be with God, so much as God coming to be with us, which is an amazing thought. Poetic language. Secondly, there are clear links with the new heaven and the new earth of Isaiah, Isaiah 65 we talked about earlier, and the first creation of Genesis 1 and 2. Paradise is being regained. The tree of life in Genesis 2 verse 9 was inaccessible after the fall. Now in Revelation 22 verse 2, it provides healing and fruit. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So the curse of Genesis is replaced by a new intimacy. And thirdly, we need to take into account the meaning of the word new. The word new doesn't necessarily mean brand new, but I think in this context it means renewed. New Testament Greek has two words for new, neos, meaning totally new, or kainos, meaning new as to its form or quality. And the Bible consistently uses the latter term for the new creation. In Revelation, in 2 Peter, many other places, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, for example, uh, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Not something brand new, but something renewed. You and I have been renewed. The old has gone, the new is here. In other words, the re we are renewed. You, when, when you were baptized into Christ, it wasn't like your body disappeared and something new came into its place. You were renewed by the Spirit coming into you. So this is the kind of newness that's being talked about in Revelation. 
new heaven and new earth is not something brand new, but something renewed, refreshed, repaired and redeemed. In the same way that God recycles broken, scarred, twisted human beings into new creations in Christ, so the old earth will be recycled into God's new creation, where the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 11, verse 15, to quote from Sandra Richter. So heaven, biblically, is the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It's beautiful. It's safe. It's lit up with the presence of God. It is abundantly fruitful. And what does that remind us of? It reminds us of Eden, the original paradise where God was meant to dwell with, uh, with, his, with his people and we were meant to enjoy that. Heaven, in reality, is Eden restored. And that's physical. That is earthly in one sense. And that new city is going to be a green city. The river of life, Revelation 22, clear as crystal, flowing down the middle of the seat, uh, the, the street, 12 crops of fruit every month in just lots of fruit, healing of the nations, no curse, uh, we'll see his face, there'll be no more night, they don't need a light. It, it's going to be wonderful. And this is, we haven't got time today, but Revelation 8, this is the vision of Revelation 8, where it talks about how the creation has been subjected to to frustration until the children of the new creation come and the first fruit we are the first fruits of the spirit and as much as we are being renewed so creation has begun potentially a, a sense of renewal towards what it will be in the end and we have begun what we will be in the end as we're being transformed more and more into Christ likeness on the day that we go to be with God or he comes to be with us then we're going to be all that we ever could have been and so is this world. So is this creation. We're not talking about obliteration. We're talking about resurrection. Well, death ultimately is defeated. The curse is repealed. There's a reconciliation with God and a return, in a sense, to Eden. God's dream is the liberation of creation from decay. That's about you and me, and it's about this world in which we live. God has planned for the liberation of creation from decay. And we will share in that with him. So therefore, how does that affect the way we live? We're going to talk more about this in the next class. I'm not going to talk about it too much today, as I'd like to leave space for discussion about that. Uh, a discussion in our families, in our family groups, or wherever we are. Why not have a conversation about if this is what's going to happen, if this is God's vision for this earth, that it be renewed and refreshed and we, we live in it in an Edenic state with God, with us, if that's the vision, then how should we live now in this creation? How should we treat this creation? How should we look after it? How should we steward it? We're going to talk more about that next time. Certainly we should be at least participating in the liberation of creation from decay, not speeding up that decay. God created something beautiful, and we're called to imitate God. The least we can do is to try to reverse the uglification of creation. 
And this means we mustn't be at least guilty of making things worse. Instead, we should be making them better. It's not acceptable to be passive, but it's imperative to be part of the healing, healing the damage done to this world by ignorance and greed, greed and effectively uh, violence. When you pray the Lord's Prayer next, and you pray that phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how might what we've talked about today influence the way you pray and what you're thinking about as you pray that prayer and how you might respond to what that means? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next time, we're going to talk about uh, compassion and justice for the vulnerable. We're going to talk about creation evangelism and we're going to talk about God's joy that he takes in his creation. I hope these thoughts have been helpful for you. I suspect for some of us, they might be somewhat new. Uh, ideas to wrestle with. Go back to your Bible and have a look. If they are disturbing, that's I wouldn't apologize for that. But I would say, talk about it, study it. And if you have any questions, do drop me a line. Malcolm at MalcolmCox.org. We'll be going for the uh, putting up the second class in two weeks time. And I hope you find that some of this at least is really helpful for you to consider whether you and I have the same vision for this creation that God does. And if we have that same vision, how then should that affect how we live? Until the next class, take care and God bless you.